This is the Zen's podcast on science, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Zen Rong Yap, and today is my guest is Dr. Andrew Shapiro. He's a co-founder and CTO of Proteus Space Inc., and was previously the manager of technology formulation at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory at the California Institute of Technology. And he has performed research on space fabrication, computational evolutionary growth, development and embryogeny, metamaterial structures. Dr. Andrew Shapiro has been a source of wisdom for me, giving me advice over the years and someone to discuss everything from Europa missions to kitchen chemistry. Dr. Shapiro embodies someone who just loves learning. Example, Dr. Shapiro taught himself quantum electrodynamics and solid state physics, always appreciating new perspectives in looking at science and engineering. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Oh, thank you, Zen. Pleasure to be here. Yes. How's it been going? Doing great, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, so um, just to start you off, I was uh, curious about what's been going on with Proteus. What inspired you to start Proteus and uh, what does it do? So uh, thank you for asking. Proteus Space is a, is a new company. Uh, we just started in June and it's based off of a technology that's been developed in Germany about uh, for the last several years. <clears throat> so let me take you back in history a little bit. Um, there's a company called Morpheus Space, uh, whom I mentored from very early on in their existence. And they're a German-based company. They sell uh, micro-electro propulsion uh, thrusters. And these are thrusters that are based on um, melting a very low melting temperature metal, forming it into microscopic, almost atomic level droplets and ionizing them and using accelerating the ions to uh, push them away from the thruster, giving the thrust the other direction. Um, so this kind of uh, technology, it's very similar to something called electrospray uh, technology. It's not quite the same, but this kind of very tiny thruster allows for precision thrusting of very small spacecraft. And that's something we've not had before. Up until now, there really wasn't any good way to control a very small CubeSat, like a 1U CubeSat. And the, the 1U size, just for your audience that isn't familiar with it, is a 10 centimeter on a side cube. Um, so these are very small spacecraft. And these uh, units are stackable, so a lot of times people are flying much larger spacecraft consisting of multiple uh, of these cubes. 12U is, a, is kind of a common multiple uh, and sometimes even larger. The problem is, is that the, all of the thrusters that were available to guide spacecraft of this kind uh, were usually pretty large, taking up almost a full uh, unit of the spacecraft. And so that makes it difficult to uh, make a very small spacecraft. So our friends at Morpheus um, developed a very small thruster about the size of your little finger. And then there's some electronics that go with it, which are about two centimeters on a side. Um, and that allows a very small package, which allows the thruster to be put uh, into a very small spacecraft. So all of a sudden now we can control a one U cube set very precisely. Previously, pretty much all we were able to do is launch the uh, CubeSats, the individual CubeSats into orbit. Usually they were launched through a spring, a spring mechanism uh, from, from a rack of some kind. And then they're essentially drifting. Sometimes they have reaction wheels to allow them to point in the direction that, that you want. But, really no uh, control over the precise orbit that they had. And this very small thruster now allows us to control that orbit. So Morpheus uh, started off as a German company. It does have a US presence. There is a US um, office and a, and a US company, uh, but it's still German owned. And being German owned, it's uh, not allowed for uh, them to sell to the US government. 
So they were interested in the U.S. government business. Uh, there are reasons that uh, the U.S. Department of Defense and NASA might be very interested in controlling very small spacecraft. And um, so they wanted to form an American company. So that's what I did is, is form this American company called Proteus Space, uh, in which we have exclusive license to the uh, Orpheus thrusters. And then I can sell those to the US government for those specific purposes. Now there are two kinds of things that are enabled by this precision control that makes it interesting. One of them is uh, you're able to control a spacecraft in very close proximity to other objects. For instance, uh, we're able to control a one-new spacecraft and we're actually able to make a maneuver so it got out of the way of another spacecraft. Uh, that's the first collision avoidance ever recorded for a one-new spacecraft. So that's a, a major landmark uh, that happened in 2020. And being able to operate very near uh, other objects, for instance, if you want to examine a piece of space junk or an asteroid or some other object that, that's not familiar to you, uh, being able to control your spacecraft carefully allows you to go right up next to that object and kind of see what it's about. And using a one U uh, spacecraft format, one U's are, are going to be very inexpensive. They're typically, you know, university built and Commercially, they can be built quite inexpensively. So if you have a very large, expensive uh, spacecraft, you know, some of the NASA spacecraft, some of the Department of Defense spacecraft are quite large, um, and you see a piece of junk or some unknown object out there, you don't want to risk your large object. And so maybe you can send a small one-use spacecraft out to take a look at it and, and see what's happening with that. So, this allows them to avoid risking their expensive assets and actually allows for the, um, for the control of the small spacecraft to see what's, what other kinds of things that might be running into. So that's one application. The other application for uh, these very small thrusters uh, that we perceive as being an enabling factor is the ability to hold a precise position relative to another spacecraft. And what that allows is very large formations. So we can have a, a large array of spacecraft and a large array of spacecraft provides some interesting opportunities. For instance, uh, sometimes a small measurement might not be as high quality as a measurement with a large instrument. So if we put something like a, uh, oh, a, a uh, an imager or a radar or a LIDAR into a very small format, which we could uh, with uh, current modernization techniques, um, we can use that, but the quality of that uh, radar image or the quality of that, um, of that uh, optical image may not be as good as, as something with a, a much larger spacecraft could use. So, but if we, if we look at multiple versions of that from a different angles and we superimpose those images together, all of a sudden we can create a much higher quality image than the original one. And so the ability to use an array for, whether it's for a spectrometer, whether it's an imager or whatever we else, else we need to uh, take a look at, we can do that now with very small spacecraft. Sounds really cool. There's a lot of stuff in there. And I wanted to uh, just slowly pick it apart. Um, with the electrospray um, sort of engines, uh, is, that, is that a trade-off from using um, what, what you're using uh, right here with um, Morpheus than with the electrospray? Because it's, it's been shrunken down, right? So is, is that a trade-off with a specific yes. impulse or something? Yeah. Um, so the, actually, the specific impulses are quite high. And, and, and to be clear, the, the Morpheus thruster is not an electrospray. It's something called a, a FEEP, actually. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but re regardless of the, the technology, the trade is that it's not a very large delta V. 
So it takes you a long time to get anywhere. So these yeah. are very fine maneuvering thrusters. These are not thrusters to take you out of orbit, for instance, or from one orbit to level to a dramatically different orbit level. Certainly we can change orbits, but it will take time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was, I was aware of the, the diff I mean, I was aware that it was not the electric spray. Um, uh, yeah, so and then I was, because I was wondering, you're talking about um, difference in quality of image, right? Um, it, it's, it's kind of similar to how the, the black hole image works, right? With superimposing everything. Yes, uh, today you can get uh, imaging software where you can superimpose images. There was a, um, a friend of mine that did uh, use the amateur telescope for looking at uh, Jupiter. And he was able to take a number of uh, images of the planet. And then there are some simple software that you can use to just superimpose those images on top of each other and mesh them together to get a, a very high quality image. So this is something that's just commercially, I think it's freeware, so. Yeah, I see. Um, that's, that's really cool. Um, uh, awesome. Well, what was it? What's the experience been like compared to being at NASA? Because I remember the last time we spoke, you said that being at NASA is like being at a company at a university, right? Where you get to do a lot of research, and um, but then you also get to try to figure out which research would be the most um, effective at commercializing or uh, turning into something that you can actually use, right? So. Uh, I thought you'd have some cool ideas and cool thoughts on that. Sure. So one of the things that with a small company, of course, we don't have a budget to do research unless the government pays us directly to do that research. So we can only do directed research. So I spend a lot of my time writing proposals <clears throat> to places like NASA to get funding for, for that research if we need it. But they're much more interested in the development element aspects. So while I was at NASA, I would do more fundamental research, research that would hopefully enable technology to be uh, matured over a number of years. But with a small company, we of course have to sell a product or service. And so I can't afford to wait several years to develop those uh, technologies. So I have to really focus on developing technologies that are near ready to, to deploy. The nice thing is, is that uh, NASA is very interested in commercializing a lot of the technologies that they've developed. So many of the technologies that I work on at NASA, I can work with NASA to license those technologies and sell them commercially. And certainly that's one of the goals is to use the uh, technology that's already had a substantial amount of development work done previously. So the real, issue is at this point is selecting the technologies that are close to ready to go, getting just enough funding to get them over uh, the hump to deploy in a, in a spacecraft and show the government that that uh, can give them value. I see. Have you guys already sold to the government? Is that something I, I can ask? Or? You can ask. Um, no, we have a, a number of proposals that are under review, but the company's only three months old. So um, we, uh, we have a lot of interest from the government and they are looking at the proposals that we've submitted. I think I have seven proposals that are outstanding at the moment. And um, they're very interested and we're waiting to hear the results of the reviews and hopefully one of those or more than one of those will get funded. Oh, I see, because I know that, um... I mean, I've been hearing a lot about all the, I mean, the sort of proposal structure that NASA goes through and the government goes through. And um, I mean, you must have heard recently that SpaceX was the only one that got a contract um, for, the, for the moon mission, I think, future. And um, I'm wondering how, how, many how many companies are in the running for, for this thing? And it must be really sort of really stringent process, right? Yes, so you have to know where to look. So that's one particular kind of contract. And interestingly enough, um, SpaceX's 
competitor, Blue Origin, filed a protest about that. Yeah. And I believe there's a bill in Congress that's under review at the moment to, to ask NASA to provide two winners to that particular contract rather than just one. So we'll see if that, that actually happens. Um, no, the proposal world is, is interesting. There are many kinds of proposals that the government asks for. A lot of the ones that we're looking at are, are starting proposals. Uh, the United States government does have a substantial uh, presence in small businesses through a number of its uh, branches. And they, have, of course, have something called an SBIR, which I think is Small Business Innovative Research uh, Proposal Competition. And so we're certainly looking at those. And typically those are small proposals on the order of 50 or $150,000, something like that, that will get an idea launched. If a company is successful for one of those, it opens up opportunities to get um, larger funding amounts to, to uh, take something much further than an initial uh, development effort. So those are very competitive but they're worth looking at. There are also, there's also something called uh, STTR. Can't remember precisely what the acronym is for, but it involves, it's similar to SBIR, but also involves a research institution. So maybe I would partner with a university or uh, one of those. And then a number of the agencies, whether it's NASA or uh, the Department of Defense, the Department of Energy, uh, they have follow-ons to those original proposals. So if you win one of these small ones then and you're successful at proving your technology works, then there are opportunities to fund, um, to get substantially more funding for the technology, for instance, for something like a flight demonstration. So if I win one of these small ones, the next that would really be a planning session and it would, I would show some modeling work and, and some designs. And then the next phase would be uh, for a for an actual flight demonstration. So in which case I would actually fly to CubeSat or multiple CubeSats to show some aspect of the technology. So the first the round one ones are typically very competitive, but the competitive landscape changes depending on which agency and how much funding is available. And then, but the phase twos are, are less competitive. If your phase one capability performs well at, at the way that you said it would, and you're able to execute and show that you can do the work and deliver uh, your results on time, uh, then the probability of uh, getting a phase two, or there's another one called a phase three, there's also one called a phase two E. These are all much higher probabilities. There's much less competition. It's more just whether the government believes you can deliver what you say you can deliver uh, once you've gotten over that first hurdle. Um, Part do, of the diff please go. Oh, sorry, I was, I was just um, wondering, do, do venture capitalists ever get involved in uh, these sorts of, um, I would say, well, businesses that deal more with the government? Is that something that uh, happens? Yes, yes, yes. And, and in fact, I've had probably close to a dozen venture capitalists approach me and ask if, uh, if I'm interested in getting funding for the company. And uh, there'll probably be a point where I will need that. What I would like to do is get funding from the government to develop the capability and to kind of prove the point and then it, use the venture capital funding to scale up production so that I could make uh, large numbers. If I'm going to do an array of some kind, um, you know, I'll probably need to make something like 100 spacecraft for one order, and that, that will require some ability to scale up. So, Is that, is that because the government, um, if there was give you funding, would be in grants instead of taking equity? Um, it can, yes, the, the government doesn't typically take equity as far as I know. They just, they fund you to, to do some research and then you deliver them a report showing them the results of that research. And of course they have license to that research that they've paid for. Yeah. 
And then also, then the next step would be an actual order from the government where they actually procure whatever it is you've developed. And so they would just buy satellites from you. I see. Do you have a sort of timeline for when, like, hopefully the, a, a proposal would go through and then when you could then start scaling up? Yeah. So I, I think that one of the proposals that I have out now should be Hopefully, we'll know something in the next six months. And then mm. I think the scale-up would, the demonstration would take about a year to a year and a half after I get the initial funding. And then I would start scaling up after that. So probably scale-up would be about two years from now. I see. Uh, I know that um, Morpheus has been around for like about two, three years now. Is that right? Yeah, I oh. think they were started in 2018 or 17, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I suppose like it would be a five-year thing they, to get up. Yeah. They've been scaling up uh, on the commercial side, and, and uh, they're going to be delivering uh, 20 units this year. And next year, they already have orders for more than 200, and they have a number of orders that they're negotiating. Um beyond that. So just right at the beginning of the year, they need to start delivering on the 200. They've scaled up. They're up to 40 people now, I think, in the, the factory they have in Dresden. Mm, I see. Uh, I, I remember I remember seeing on the website that there's something about carbon nanotubes. It may have been in the neutralizer or uh, one of the yeah. other components. Yeah. Um, what is the purity or something like that? Because I know that it's always it's all, the common nanotubes is it's really it's really difficult to produce a lot of it, right? So that's that's I, I can't really discuss any details sure. on how they're doing that, um, but I do have a lot of experience in carbon nanotubes. I was one of the um, one of the review panel for a substantial NASA investment in scaling up of carbon nanotube processing. Um, it was an effort that involved five universities and several companies and production of nanotubes. And um, nanotubes are actually fairly easy to produce. Uh, they're actually fairly easy to produce large quantities of at this point. And so the manufacturing world is just working on how to keep the quality of the nanotubes uh, intact while they're producing larger and larger volumes. So, so they're mm. actually, that is starting to scale up and has been for the last several years. I see. How, how have, what's, what would you say has been like the biggest innovation in um, manufacturing nanotubes? That's difficult to speak to. Um, I'd have to go back and look look at my notes. I know some of the uh, companies told us some of the different things. I think a lot of it was uh, just getting the uh, chemistry right so that they didn't start to seed nanotubes that were too small or, or ones that grow. Uh, the, one of the problems is that they grow, grow multiple um, annular rings. So you can have a tube within a tube within a tube and to get to single walled nanotubes is a little more difficult. And so a lot of it is just the process control kinds of issues which are typical in any kind of chemical process. So those are the major issues, learning how to refine what's critical, balancing the catalyst that they grow them on with the, uh, with the control of the, chemistry of the environment that they're growing them in. I see. So um, would you say it's, I mean, is it, does it make any sense to sort of put it in any discipline, like say it's more of a chemical engineering problem rather than a materials problem, or it's just everything? Yeah, I guess having degrees in both. Uh, it's, uh, uh, I think it starts out as a purely a materials problem and how to get them started in the first place and the scale up really becomes a chemical engineering problem. I see, yeah. Because um, one, one of the big uh, things that has caused me a little bit of frustration was seeing all the popular science articles uh, say that there are new ways of using materials every day. But, um, but I'm, 
I'm so I'm like I've I've been aware that the issue has been in scaling up, and this has been something for the last like 50 years. Because I mean, the ideas and science of nano of like nanomaterials has been around for quite a while. Yes. Um, so typically, from the university discovery stage to some kind of useful production, normally it's a 20 or 30 year cycle. Most people probably aren't aware of that. Now, there are always exceptions. There are, I'm sure, things that have gotten to market much faster than that. But even something like lasers, which are used every day now in all kinds of applications, those were discovered in the early 60s. And for at least 20 years, they had very, very few real applications. Mm. Um, people had a lot of ideas what could be done with lasers, but to actually practically implement them was very difficult and, until a lot of the kind of processes have been worked out until they could actually make semiconductor lasers. And then all of a sudden they're able to uh, apply them to many uh, commercial problems. I see. So it's, uh, it's almost like, um, sort of like a singularity sort of point that then allows all the applications to just come after that. I see that. At least that puts into perspective the timeline of it. And the same thing is happening with things like additive manufacturing. That technology has been around at least in polymers for 20 years. Um, but people are just figuring out how to use it. And uh, it's only been around in metals for, well, practically a little over 10 years. Um, and just now people are figuring out how they can do that in a, in a reasonable way. It's still somewhat uh, low volume and uh, one of a kind kinds of applications. It hasn't scaled up yet. Yeah, I've, I've been reading about relativity space and how they've been trying to do a, uh, use additive manufacturing to build a whole rocket. And, it's, and it seems like the quite a lot of advant advantages to doing that, like optimizing this, the structure and um, being able to use sort of more complex shapes. What, what are your thoughts yes. on that? Yeah, well, that's, it's interesting you bring them up. I, I talked to those guys when they were just starting the company. Um, and I guess I probably should have joined them since they got over a billion dollars in funding now. But uh, <laughs> yeah. They have a uh, they have an interesting process where they use the robotic arm with a wire feed, and uh, they have it's pretty impressive capabilities that they have. Um, we will see how they progress. It looks like they're making progress. I don't want to um, say much one way or the other. Um, it'll be interesting. There are a lot of uh, technical issues that need to be worked out and hopefully they'll be able to do that. And I think they have enough funding now that they should be able to work some of those technical details out, but it's not simple, right? These are not easy things to do. So they've got their work cut out for them in order to be successful. Conceptually, it's a great idea. Conceptually, it's straightforward. When you get into the technical details of the metallurgy and that kind of thing, it, it's not simple. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's materials just gets more and more complex as you as you go. Uh, um, I was is there? I wanted to ask. Um, do you do you think what you're doing right now uh, allows you to combine all your skills and experiences from your time at NASA, and your time as a professor, um, like talking with all sorts of companies? Um, that's a, that's a good question. In addition to starting the company, I'm also doing some consulting for some folks that are that are working with NASA. So I still have my hand in that area. But I think what um, well, the broader based technology development experience, uh, for which is what I did really for the last 10 years at JPL, was to develop technologies for space of all different kinds, whether they were signal processing technologies, uh, orbit optimization, artificial intelligence, neural nets. There are many kinds of technologies in addition to the more physical ones like additive manufacturing or uh, fabrication of instruments. Um, 
having seen the wide range of technologies that NASA has been developing and that could be developed for NASA, I think provided me with a great uh, background so that I, as I talk to customers and find out particular needs that they, that they have, if they need a particular kind of sensor, I know whether NASA's actually put some money into developing a sensor of that kind and whether it's a big one or a little one, how much further uh, it needs to go in order to be uh, useful in a commercial context. So I think all of the background that I've worked with NASA and uh, I was with Hughes Aircraft for almost 20 years prior to that, um, gives me a substantial background in understanding what's possible immediately and what might take a little longer to develop and what can't be done at all, at least with the technologies that we have uh, today. And so having that kind of diverse uh, technology background allows me to pick and choose the technologies that should help our customers most efficiently. That's cool. Um, is there a certain sort of um, favorite thing that you had seen some sort of technology that you wish had come true or one that has? I mean, you've seen a lot of te technology anyway. Uh, uh, hmm. Well, one of the committees I've been on for the last 15 years or so, maybe actually probably almost 20 years, um, I've been on the IEEE uh, Optoelectronics Packaging Committee. And some of the technologies I've seen come through there are pretty amazing. I know that at one point, uh, IBM was working on a purely optical computer, which was kind of interesting because oh. <laughs> it was looking at optical optical transistors. But if you let's avoid the optical transistors for just a second. So let's assume that the calculations are done with standard gates uh, in a silicon semiconductor. But then what they were able to do is build into that, into that silicon semiconductor, uh, electrical to optical conversion, so that they do the calculation electronically, then convert it to an optical signal, which can run at super high speeds. That would go from out of the chip onto an optical path on a circuit board from the optical path on the circuit board through an optical fiber to another circuit board or as many as they're needed for the, for the computer. And ultimately the signal can come out optically. So everything but the actual computation right at the gate was done optically, which uh, removes a tremendous number of bottlenecks in computational speeds. Ultimately, if they can get that to work, um, we'll see substantial increases because the, the bottlenecks are not so much at the, it used to be that the, the bottleneck was at the, at the core, at the computational core. It's how many cores that you had doing, doing uh, computations for you was kind of the limit and the, and the frequency of the speed of those cores. Usually it's a couple of gigahertz. Well, that used to be the bottleneck, but for the last decade or so, that's not been the bottleneck at all. The bottleneck has been other things. It's getting the information in and out of the chips. It's been getting the information in and out of the boards. And so if you can do that optically, then that removes all of those bottlenecks. So would it also solve the, solve the problem of uh, not being able to etch um, the silicon onto, not being able to etch small enough pieces of silicon onto a wafer? Um, no, they're I, actually they've they've actually developed technologies where they can integrate the the silicon directly on they can integrate the optical devices directly into the silicon itself. So they can actually create the lasers. That's one of the ways of um, converting electrical to optical energy, modulate the laser, and then use a detector, an optical detector that converts back to electronic signal all on the chip itself. So that, that technology all has been worked out at this point. So what was the issue with that? Um, and when, when was this? this uh, was it quite a while so ago? This has really been over the last 
10 years, I guess the last, it, the, the field is called silicon photonics. And I would say the, it was proven on the benchtop more than 10 years ago, and then really has gotten into the development cycle the last five years. So it's relatively new, uh, relatively yeah. new technology. Conceptually, it's been around for quite a while, but previously the lasers and the detectors were made from different materials. They weren't made from silicon. Usually they were made from three, five or two, six semiconductors. And then they would have to interconnect with the silicon somehow. But hmm. more recently they've been able to create these devices directly within the silicon so that they're completely integrated. Well, would it? Uh, would it save space as well, do you think? Oh. Um, yes and no. It saves space in that you don't have multiple devices if you're doing the opto-to-electronic conversion. However, the routing of electronic signals is you can have much more dense in some ways than um, you can optically. So it's a, it's a strange mechanical trade in that the optical signal can carry many, many more frequencies yeah. at the same time, right? It can multiplex multiple frequencies and to much higher frequencies. So you can carry a lot more signal in an optical fiber, but the optical fibers themselves are difficult to pack. And so there is a, a volume that is taken up with the, with the interface from the uh, chip out to the optical fiber. So in some places you can make things smaller because, you know, if you had a large number of things that you're trying to, to uh, communicate out to the rest of the world, it definitely can be much smaller. But um, if the primary uh, thing that you're working on was mostly computation internally and then sending the signal out, then you don't save that much space because they, uh, because of this mechanical optical interface. Hmm. So I was thinking about the other possibility of using it on a satellite or a small, like a CubeSat, for example. Yes, and, um, yes. So the answer is yes, we can do that. Hmm. That's, that's, that's really cool, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, different sort of computer and space like that. Uh, well, would, would it, I'm just thinking, because the radiation um, could be sort of mistaken for as light uh, in the yeah. So um, we do have experience with optics and optical fibers in space. There were a number of optical circuits and optical fibers on the space station. Yeah. And what we found out was that the the main issue with radiation is that the it damages the optical fibers mm. so in the space station they had to replace the optical fibers initially two or three times um, because eventually what happens is the um, the radiation just essentially the fiber clouds over if you will it stops being transparent because of the damage from the radiation um, until there are certain fibers particular chemistries of fibers that are much less susceptible to this kind of damage. And there's some shielding that you can also put on the fibers to make them less susceptible. I think ultimately there's always some degradation, but you can minimize the effects. So you have to have things like error checking and redundancy so that you don't get some stray signal that, that could cause you a problem. So a lot of it is just checking your data and understanding what you've sent and validating it as you get it. What, what is the sort of process that you take when you're thinking about risk? Would you do a simulation first or would you go, go off intuition and see uh, what kind of like, experiments you'd have to do? Um, for, for risk in general? Well, risk and also uh, ensuring something like an optic fiber would work on the space station. Oh, oh so for there's a, just a tremendous amount of testing. Yeah. So NASA did a huge amount of testing, decades worth of testing before they actually put the fiber up. And then they only used it in some of their things. They didn't use it in anything critical for a while. And then they tested to see how it was working in the environment. 
So um, that's one of the reasons that it's difficult for NASA to incorporate technologies quickly is that it requires just a tremendous amount of testing. Mm. You don't want somebody's life dependent on a technology that you don't know how it's going to behave when it's in the radiation environment, for instance. And if people's lives have been dependent on the fiber of the first one they put up there, that could have been problematic. But they were very smart about how they did it and, and continue to be very smart about how they test things and check them out before they uh, before they release them for more critical applications. Uh, yeah, so when you were doing technology formulation, uh, were you also part of the small technology spacecraft program? I found that on the NASA website. Um, only peripherally. Uh, my colleague who was in the office next to me did some work with the small uh, spacecraft program at NASA. Um, and we did launch a, uh, a uh, demonstration of a, a radar antenna technology uh, using the small spacecraft program, but that was not my primary focus when I was there. I mean, I was aware of it and knew people who worked on it. That's not something I worked on. I see. Uh, but do you think with the space industry, it'll, it's going to move more towards small like CubeSats or spacecraft? So it already has kind of, right? Yeah, that's my thesis. Um, I think it's going to take a while for it to get there. I believe that everything is going to go much smaller. Um, the rest of the government world hasn't figured that out yet, I believe. Um, the reason that it hasn't were there were some there were some tall poles in the tent, if you will. Um, one of them was the thruster. But now that's why I perceive that the, the thrusters we make at uh, Proteus as an enabling technology. Uh, another was a power supply uh, that could be made in a compact form. And I'm working with a company called Xeno. Uh, they're very interesting. They started up about the same time as, as Morpheus, and they were, in fact, in the same uh, Starburst Techstars accelerator as, as Morpheus was. And Xeno makes um, power supplies out of strontium. Now, strontium-90 has several advantages. It's a, they make a, a radioisotope thermal generator, an RTG, and this is using just the heat from the, from the radioactive decay to, the radioactive decay generates heat, the heat gets converted into electricity and they can use that to power the spacecraft. Now NASA has done that, that's the current rovers that NASA is using are based on this technology. So NASA uses plutonium. Now plutonium is, is problematic in that it's very hard to work with. Uh, NASA is allowed to make exactly one size of RTG, and they, um, it's expensive and it has tremendous amount of regulation and security involved. Nice thing about strontium-90 that Xeno is using is it's not weaponizable, so the regulation comes down tremendously. Um, it's much safer to handle, and they aren't restricted in the size or form factor that they have, so they can process it to be in any shape or, or size that they need. And so they can make it for a very small spacecraft. So now we have power available for a small spacecraft. We have thrusters available for a small spacecraft. And the last bit is the sensors. And so think of things like cameras on your phones, that kind of thing. Now the ones on your phones directly, won't work very well in space. As you pointed out, there are issues with optics and that kind of thing. And so the coatings will probably cloud over quickly because of the radiation. But that's just because they're not built with that in mind. The fact is, the phones demonstrate that the optics and things can be made in a very, very small package. And so now that we can make the optics in a small package, you can make other sensors, say things like LIDAR, LIDARs and radars, which are in your automobile. You if you have a modern car, you probably have 20 or 30 of these things in your, in your automobile. And having those um, in your 
those sensors available, again, made commercially, they've demonstrated that they can be made very small. Those aren't directly ready for space, but it's not that difficult to change out the components for ones that are appropriate for space and have miniaturized sensors. So now you have thrusters, power supplies, sensors, all of a sudden a miniature spacecraft makes a lot more sense. Previously, uh, without these uh, capabilities, it was hard to make the spacecraft much smaller. Now the small spacecraft won't have the performance, right? The cameras aren't gonna be as good as the super high quality cameras that might be in a, in a much larger spacecraft. The, um, the power, maybe the Delta V isn't as big so you can't get to a new orbit as quickly. On the other hand, um, you can make many of these uh, small spacecraft and you can put them in multiple places. And so there's the ability to create high quality data using multiple sources with a small spacecraft that wasn't there before. And then there are some more advantages if you need to move a few of them off to explore and look at something that um, is unknown to you or in a different direction, you can, if you have an array, you can split the array and go look at something else if you need to do that. There are a lot of options that are now open that were not open if you're dealing with just one large, very expensive asset. Yeah, so I guess with more people going to the small spacecraft industry, uh, with economies of scale, everything becomes cheaper, and there'd be more people launching them up in space and so on and so forth. Uh, but then yes. also, um, I guess the obvious uh, question would be what happens at the end of the life of the small spacecraft? Um, and would you, would you like sort of uh, maneuver into... Uh, and into a trajectory that it burns up or do you leave it in space and try to repurpose it? What would you do? So that's, a, that's a great question. And there's been a lot of work in this area now. So, so two things. One of them is having these precise thrusters allows you to deorbit the small spacecraft, whereas previously you didn't have control over them. So they would just naturally decay, but the natural decay orbits may take 20, 30 years, maybe more. Now we can intentionally deorbit them so we can uh, reduce the space jump at the end of the lifetime. So that's one. Number two, we can put some of these very small thrusters on very large spacecraft. So at the end of their lifetime, we can slowly move them to deorbit. Uh, another item is that the small spacecraft will most likely completely burn up as opposed to larger spacecraft where chunks may actually not burn up as, as well. So. Um, so there are some real advantages of having this small thruster capability and also going to the smaller spacecraft actually from the space junk point of view is, is substantially larger. Another possibility is there's a company called Starfish, which is looking at um, removing space junk. And so we're talking to them about whether you know, our thrusters might work with their spacecraft where they can actually repurpose or remove uh, space junk, whether it's by deorbiting or, or some other method. So there are a lot of possibilities opening up and there are just a huge number of small spacecraft companies now, small in the sense that companies are small and small in the sense that they're looking at small spacecraft uh, to do um, a variety of these tasks that just weren't there five years ago even. Yeah, I've been hearing a lot about sort of CubeSat challenges. And one of my friends um, from one of the physics camps I did, he was, I think he was like 12 when he was there. And he's at, he's at university when he's like 13. And he said that he did one of the CubeSat um, challenges as well. So, um, yeah, lots of, lots of work being done there. Um, is, it, would you, is it more difficult to uh, control a small spacecraft? Um, or do you think since there are more small spacecraft, there's a lot more data on trajectories and then you can train more models on that and control it? No, that's interesting. I'm writing proposals on exactly that subject. Um, you couldn't control them well prior to now because there were no thrusters that were appropriate in size. Now that we have some thrusters that are appropriate in size, we have much better ability to control them. You could point them with reaction wheels, um, but that still didn't help 
moving them to different orbits and, and that kind of thing. So I'm studying that very carefully, but I think the physics is very well understood. Uh, we're validating to find the exact edges of how precisely you can control them and that kind of thing. But I think it's, it's very well understood how to control them and that kind of thing. It's really comes down to the super edge of the capability is, you know, is it a tenth of an arc second or a millionth of an arc second uh, ability to point the spacecraft and things like that? Those are the kinds of questions that we, that we need to ask now. Because my, my thinking was that since it's smaller, it, it could be more susceptible to maybe small chunks um, like hitting it and then completely throwing it off its axis, right? Because yes. it's just like less mass in general. Yes, yes, that's certainly true. And I think also other things like uh, gravitational anomalies will start to be more, more predominant as well as uh, electromagnetic anomalies will start to be more predominant. So there are multiple reasons why it might be a little more difficult to control a very small spacecraft. But again, I think that the small thrusters are really an, an enabling technology for that because we can autonomously use the thrusters to adjust the orbits as these small perturbations in the orbits come up that we can keep them on very precise orbits with a, with a very precise thruster. Would you sort of have them on all faces or like on six faces so that you can maneuver that way or just have um, one thruster? That's certainly possible. Uh, there are multiple ways to approach the problem. I probably having them on six faces is not that efficient. Mm, yeah. We can steer the spacecraft pretty well by putting multiple on one face. And Morpheus has a has a uh, package of seven thrusters together, which would think of a hexagon with an extra one in the center. Um, and and they and the diameter of that whole thruster outlet is about the size of a quarter. And they can use those to actually shift the trajectory by by slightly, by slightly uh, thrusting from one side or the other side more. So they can turn a couple of the thrusters on and a couple of them off and they can actually just move the spacecraft that way. You can do it in different dimensions. I see. Um, with regards to the, um, well, these, those engines, is that, what's the, what's the next steps? How would you then improve it further? Have you, have you guys been thinking about that? Um, I'm sure you have. Yeah, I, I think the development of the thruster at this point has been primarily on the Morpheus side, and they're constantly yeah. they're constantly uh, doing that. Give me just a second. No worries. So uh, recently they shifted to a new fuel. So previously they were using liquid gallium, or it's actually a solid block of gallium, which they would liquefy for the, for the thruster. They've moved to an alloy now that uh, has higher efficiency. So they're constantly making improvements in the ability of the thrusters. In addition to that, we're working on, on the autonomy portion of it, where we can make sure that we keep the orbit precisely where it's supposed to be, and that the space we don't have to command from the ground to adjust the orbit that that the spacecraft itself will sense whether it's on the correct trajectory and then uh, adjust its orbit uh, autonomously. I see. Um, so, do you think that? Um, having other comp other big aerospace companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin coming in and um, changing the whole environment for startups uh, has that uh, impacted um, what you would have what you would have or would have done differently with Proteus? Um, has it made you think a bit about uh, sort of our involvement outside of the government? Um, well, I, I think the presence of these commercial space companies has completely enabled the existence of, of Proteus. I don't think Proteus would exist without SpaceX and Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic creating the concept that 
uh, commercial companies could could work in space without the uh, government's help. And I think that that's really the uh, the key thing that they brought. And they're creating a whole space industry, which is growing well beyond the major players. But now that the costs of putting a very small satellite into orbit have keep coming down, it's the point where smaller companies, smaller and smaller companies can put assets into orbit and do different things, provide data to people who are interested in it. So now it's not large corporations or government assets controlling uh, what data you get from space, but it's small commercial companies that can do that. And that's a huge change. And I think that's entirely enabled by, by companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin. I think they laid the groundwork for that. And my friends and I have been talking about um, the, the UK space industry as well and how um, it's much more of a satellite-based industry, I think, here. And uh, I mean, people have been coming up with ideas on on startups for CubeSats or something like that, like uh, fresh out of university. And I think um, that having seen, um, what's it called, commercial companies on YouTube to be able to launch rockets and um, and billionaires going to space, actually, and actually like your thoughts on that as well, uh, I think has uh, allowed more people to start to dream again about space. Yeah. Um, I think that that's great. And, and I'm glad topic of billionaires in space. Um, I know the, the press covered it kind of as a, as a uh, more of a stunt than anything else, but I think it's, it's quite serious. Uh, I think people don't understand what's happened in the last couple of months is, is completely changing the industry. Um, the fact that Branson and and Elon Musk have ridden in their own spacecraft. These are huge, huge changes for the, for the following reason. It says that these high value business owners believe that their spacecraft are safe enough to risk their own lives in using them. That's a huge step prior to months ago, whenever the, that first uh, launch was, I believe it was the SpaceX launch. Prior to that, it was always the government ensuring that the astronauts were going to be safe. That's just a complete change in history now, in that now private companies have ensured people that they're going to be safe in space, and they prove it by riding in it themselves. This is a big deal. This means that they have confidence in the technology, they have confidence in the safety, they have confidence in the repeatability. Um, these are all things that did not exist without the government taking a completely dominant role prior to two months ago. So this is a big change in the space industry and it's, it's quite significant even if they are suborbital flights, it doesn't matter. All of the technologies needed for a suborbital flight, the, are exactly the same as the ones needed for full orbit. Uh, they're just one or two additional small things for deorbiting, and those are well understood. And so, so the fact that they're doing these suborbital flights, if you remember, the government did suborbital flights with um, in the 1960s with uh, John Glenn. Right? The first uh, Mercury flight was a suborbital flight. It's exactly the same way that that Blue Origin and SpaceX are approaching the problem. So. I think the shift is huge. I think it's not a publicity stunt, but it shows real value and a real change in the space industry, uh, really starting to open it up for space tourism, which is, was always something that people talked about, but wasn't really viable until now. I really like that, that take on um, seeing these people go to space. Because the, the media kind of just, um, what's it called, says that it's they're wasting money and there's no real reason why they should be doing it. Um, but I think we've really been, yeah, as you said, seeing this massive change. I remember last year staying up until late at night in Malaysia, seeing um, the the space the SpaceX launch the two astronauts back to, sp to space again. And 
yeah, aus. <laughs> do, do you think you, you'd like to go to space or is that something that you'd leave to the astronauts? Well, I, I'd be happy to go to space. I, I don't know whether I'll have the uh, funding to be able to do that. You know, or maybe if my company is successful, then I'll get invited to uh, to ride along. But certainly, I would enjoy that. I think that would be a, a great thing to do. Mm. Yeah. Um. So, wanted to ask you a bit about um. What's it called? Wanted to ask you a bit about um. What you what the consulting projects have been about. Is it is it different? How how different is it to uh, your work when you're at NASA? Um, do you feel uh, you don't have as much ownership on it? Um, what's it like? So it's it's um, I, I'm enjoying it. No, I I do still feel strong ownership of anything that I work on. So that's just my nature. Um, but it's it's different in the following way. Um, you mentioned one of the challenges. Now, NASA hires companies to run these CubeSat challenges uh, and that kind of thing. And one of the companies I'm consulting for is one that ma manages some of these challenges for NASA. And in fact, I had used them for a, um, a challenge that I ran at NASA. And, um, but it's fun for me now that I'm helping them manage the competitors it's different from being uh, managing the competitors from being the sponsor. It's a, it's a different role. And prior, when I was at NASA, I felt very obligated to make sure that each competitor was, I felt responsible for their delivery. Now, when I'm managing the competitors, but not on the sponsor side, I would like them all to be successful. I want them to succeed and I'll do everything I can, but I don't personally feel responsible for their, their success. I think that's, um, it's not my job, it's their job to execute their plan. And it's my job to make sure that there aren't any hurdles in the way of them executing their plan. So uh, that's certainly a, uh, a different role for me, but often, and. Likewise, also I'm at NASA, I was often on the reviewer side of proposal writing for things like SBIRs. Now I'm on the proposing side. So it's it's a little different from, from that. Um, did you ever have any computational um, sort of projects that you were reviewing or do you consult for any of those kinds of things? More like signals processing, I'm guessing, or uh, possibly like machine learning for detection of of like ge geological uh, phenomena, I guess. So I, um, I did sponsor work on signal processing and um, some artificial intelligence work when I was at NASA. Um, but on the consulting side, I haven't been doing anything in that, in that dimension. I think it will eventually come up. I think that there's a lot of work that's being done in artificial intelligence and trying to detect uh, different environments. Uh, but so far I haven't worked in any on the consulting side, but certainly there are a number of companies that are working on this side. And I think it will be become a very uh, prominent, uh, prominent capability. It will become more and more important as we move forward. Yeah, um, that's great. I just wanted to ask one last thing. Um, it's more about Skylink. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it. It's the it's sort of like the, the line of satellites uh, in space. So um, it was quite weird. A couple, I think it was a couple months ago, must have been in like June or something. I saw I saw Skylink go across uh, the the sky at like twelve a.m. at night. I was standing in in my college in Oxford. Uh, and just seeing for the a minute or two, there's dots of satellites going across. Um, and I wanted to, um, I mean, that's like the beginning of um, small satellites and Wi-Fi going everywhere. Um, what are your, what's your vision for, for small spacecraft? Um, will everyone have Wi-Fi and everyone have a free access to education, 
Well, what uh, what next? What else? Yeah, cer certainly, certainly that is is a um, is a vision that many people share, and I think uh, Facebook and some of the other companies that are sponsoring some of these arrays are really do have a vision of enabling Wi-Fi across the globe, which I think is great. I think it will be a tremendous step for humanity to have everybody able to participate in in the global knowledge whereas now you know there are certain fractions of the population that are left out and and ignored and so it would be great to have them involved with the rest of humanity in this um, as we progress in the digital age I think um, we will see more and more of these kinds of constellations being evolved and one of my objectives is to make the satellite smaller and smaller so that these constellations will be very effective and then not contribute to things like space junk and be uh, able to be disposed of fairly easily. So I think there's a, a whole ecosystem that has to be developed around figuring out how to do more socially responsible uh, spacecraft, even though there will be many more of them, they'll be much smaller. And so as we see hundreds and hundreds of smaller spacecraft now uh, being released, I think we have an obligation to be more responsible about how we handle them. And I think that that's uh, one of those things that many nations need to agree on. I think there need to be global agreements on how that is handled in the future and that nations need to comply along those directions. That's great. Thank you for that. Um, and as we're rounding up, did you, is, was there anything that you wanted to mention or talk about? Um, no, I think there's a great future for, for smaller satellites. I think there's a great future for many, many more companies to participate in the new space uh, arena. And I think that many people will have things that I cannot possibly imagine uh, that they will use these small spacecraft for because they'll become inexpensive, they'll become ubiquitous, and every citizen will be able to find an application and without much difficulty be able to try their new application on a variety of spacecraft. And it opens up completely new vistas that, that people have just never thought of before. Do you have any advice for people wanting to start the company in space, like this, the aerospace industry? Um, I would get a technology degree to start with. I think that that solid fundamental math, science, physics background is very, very important for understanding what you're doing. And once you understand that, then um, it can open up to a wide variety of things. And I guess the thing is, have those fundamentals, but don't be limited by them. Great. Um, where can people find your work and uh, contact you <laughs> if, if that's what you want? That's, that's a great question. Um, Proteus Space will actually be putting up a website uh, in the next week or two. And, and I think that that's the easiest way to get a hold of me. LinkedIn is probably the thing that I use most. So my profile's easily available on LinkedIn and be happy to respond to anybody who wants to contact me that way. Um, I typically go to many of the um, technical space conferences and so, uh, there's a high probability that if you go to a space conference, I'll be there and I'd be happy to talk with anybody who's interested at that point. That's great. Thank you very much, Dr. Andrew Shapiro. It's always great as always. <laughs>